Well, one thing I've dis- discovered is this. Everybody has a favorite Christmas carol. Or at least a group of favorites. Some of you are like, you have a clear favorite. Some of you just have a group of carols that you really enjoy. Um, but in either case, uh, we all have our favorites. And, and maybe my, my very favorite Christmas carol of all is the one that we're talking about this morning. O Come All Ye Faithful. It's definitely in the top two. The other one that's sort of its rival we're going to be talking about on Christmas Eve. But O Come All Ye Faithful... Uh, the one we're talking about this morning was written in 19, or in, sorry, in 1750 by John Francis Wade, and it was actually originally composed in Latin. And I really had hoped that the carol choir was going to do the number in Latin today, so I was really disappointed. I asked them to retool it after the first service for this service, and they just couldn't make it happen. But you know, I guess we'll we'll have to deal. Now, here, here's what I love about. The song, Oh Come All You Faithful. Is there like music happening? Am I hearing bells? Lots of angels are getting their wings right now. Anyway. Um, all right. Here's what I love about the song, Oh Come All You Faithful. It, it proclaims the arrival of God. It announces the birth of Christ. It, it sings about the fact that the king of angels has come to earth. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just stop with proclaiming something about God. And actually, I, I believe, challenges us, calls to us, offers us this, this, this beckoning at Christmas. It says, in response to, to the birth of Christ and to God come to earth, you now come, you come and behold Him. You come and greet Him. Come and adore Him. Sing in exultation, it says. You see, implicit in this carol is, I believe, a question for us to consider. And that's this question. As we celebrate the coming of Christ to us, how do we, in response, come to Him? In fact, is is our reaction appropriate in light of who this baby, born in Bethlehem, truly is? The Word of the Father now appeared in human flesh. If you have your Bibles this morning, grab them, open them to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. If you need to use one in the pew rack in front of you or under, under your seat, um, if you're using a, one of those Bibles, we're on page 783 this morning. And again, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of reactions, the kind of responses people had, and, and I will, will claim still have to this day, when faced with the birth of Christ and His authority and lordship and kingdom come into this world. The reactions and responses we see to God come near to us. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1 this morning. I'm going to read it all the way through, then we're going to go back and dig in a little bit. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod called the Magi secretly and, that, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After... Is there still bells happening? <laughs> Sorry, I just feel like I'm going crazy up here. In front of hundreds of people, I am going nuts. Okay, I'm not. You're nuts too. Here we go. Keep going. Focus. Scripture. Verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Right. This morning we jump, and this is a passage we could spend six weeks in. There is so much here, but, but I believe what, what God has offered me and that I'll offer back to you for today um, is going to be a lot of fun. And we jump right in with a couple of verses that are loaded with potential drama and conflict. And I, and I want you to sort of catch this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Now, before we get too far in, in let me tell you what was happening in the world at this time, so that you can see just how powder-packed these verses truly are. This is like heavy plot, high drama, a lot of conflict right out of the gate. Here we go. At the time when Jesus was born, right, right during this time frame, there were two major world empires. There was the leading empire of the world, the, the, the empire that was kind of taking control and had the most power, the Roman Empire in the West... And then there was the Persian Empire, sometimes called the Medo-Persian Empire, in the east. And actually, at one time, several centuries earlier, the Persian Empire had been the clear leader. They were the undisputed heavyweight champions of the known world when it came to world empires. And they kind of lost a step or two to the Romans, but a few centuries earlier, they were like top dog. In fact, historians tell us that at its height, the Persian Empire was quite possibly the largest, most powerful empire this world has ever known, including current world empires like the one we live in. So if you saw the movie 300, um, which I am not recommending, but if you happen to see that movie, the army depicted there, the, the army that comes to take on the 300 Spartans, that enormous, vast, like, <gasps> gasp in fear army, that was the Persian army. You see it there, sort of picture, pictured in the movie. It just went on forever and ever and ever. The, the Persian army. It was huge. So we have this world power, the Persian Empire, and at the very center of this world power, there was a tribe of people called the Magi. And the Magi functioned as sort of the priests of this empire. They were trained and very skilled in astronomy and astrology, and they maintained an enormous amount of, of authority and spiritual influence in the kingdom. In fact, they became so powerful, the Magi were so powerful, that no king could be crowned in the Persian Empire without the consent and approval of 
the Magi. They wielded that much authority. That's how significant they were. They were these sort of world-renowned Persian kingmakers, the Magi. Well, during the time of King Herod, and you'll notice that's how our story begins this morning, there was actually some conflict between the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire. The world's largest empire of the day, the Romans, sort of emerging and taking over for the Persians, they would they tended to sort of run into each other, and there was conflict between them. And I'll bet you'll never guess where it was, geographically, that the Roman Empire overlapped with the Persian Empire. I looked all over for a good map, and I couldn't find one, so I kind of created my own. If you look on the map here, you can see, in general, next slide, that the, the next slide in the list... That one, there it is. <laughs> Worked hard on that one, so I wanted to get up there. You see kind of generally where the Roman Empire was and where the Persian Empire was and where they sort of collide and run into each other and where the conflict was just happens to be right there on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea in this little nation called Israel. Some of you have noticed that in Israel has tended, even the scriptures and even to today, been a place of like a lot of conflict. Well, back in these times, the reason Israel was often filled with strife is because it's this little land bridge between Europe and the Middle East and Africa. And so to control that region was high, highly politically advantageous. And so the world superpowers were always jockeying to control this little area um, of turf. And so a lot of conflict happens there. And the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire overlap, and a lot of conflict happened in this region between these two powers. And finally, in 40 BC, 40 years before Jesus was born, 40 years before our story today, Israel at that time, controlled and ruled by the Romans, was attacked and defeated by the Persians. So in 40 BC, the Persians regained control of Israel. And at that time, the rural area of northern Israel called Galilee, which you'll, re- which you'll remember because Jesus was born in Galilee, did a lot of his ministry in Galilee, that region was ruled by a man named Herod. But just before the Persians attacked, Herod, he was a smart guy, he saw him coming, he hopped on a boat, he hightailed it out of there, and he sailed back to Rome. And when he got to Rome, by the time he was there, The Persians had already taken over. But he went before the Roman Senate. And he convinced the Roman Senate that if they wanted to take back Israel, if they wanted to control it, he was the man who could do it. If they would support him, he could go back, he could regain it, and he could maintain stability in that region if only they would back him. And the Roman Senate said, okay, okay. And so Herod sails back to Israel fights the Persians for three long years until finally in 37 BC, 37 years now before our story today, 37 years before Jesus, Herod wins. He defeats the Persians, he takes back Israel, and the Roman Senate gave him the official title of, wait for it, the King of the Jews. Herod has now regained control of this very strategic piece of land that we so desperately want, where these people, the Jews, live. Herod, you now are officially the king of the Jews. So now with that history, with all that in the backdrop, let's look again at verse 1. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east, kingmakers from Persia, Rome's sworn enemy, came to Jerusalem, the capital city of the region, and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Now, can... Can you imagine? I know I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd, and so Pastor Matt and I are really excited about this right now, but get excited with us. Because can you imagine the stir and the scandal and the tabloids? Can you, I mean, can you picture what they're printing in Jerusalem and in Israel these days? The uprising that would have occurred when these magi came rolling into town talking about a new king? And just FYI, just to kind of set the record straight here, We do not know how many magi there were. Could have been three, could have been more. We generally use the number three, why? Because there were three gifts, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that every magi would have brought a gift. Who knows how many magi there were. And my guess, just a guess, I I would assume there were probably more than three. And they didn't roll in like real quiet and covert and subtle like we sometimes picture them with their three camels in the middle of the night over the sand dunes into Bethlehem, right? That's not how it went. History tells us that when Magi from Persia traveled, they were always accompanied by a number of of Persian uh, cavalry, right? So this would have been a huge entourage uh, from the east, from Persia, rolling into Roman-occupied Israel. You think that might have made headlines? Yeah, and this all leads, all of this, all this conflict and turmoil and a hype and angst leads to the very first reaction we read about to Jesus' birth in verse 3. When Herod heard about this, when he heard that the Magi were coming, the entourage had rolled in, the kingmakers from Persia were now in town, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed. That's like the understatement of the year, isn't it? The Greek word here is the word paraso, and it means panicked, afraid, troubled, scared, freaked out, terrified, threatened. Herod was threatened. It's the same word, by the way, that's used when uh, Jesus is walking on the water. And, and he goes out to his disciples in the middle of the night and they see him walking on the water and they're just completely panicked and freaked out and overwhelmed by the power they're, they're seeing approach to them. Herod is, is, is panicked. He is threatened by the power that he sees approaching him. Why? Why? I actually think it's because Herod understands something about the birth of Christ that we so often miss. He understands why Jesus has come and what his agenda is, maybe more than we do sometimes. Herod is freaked out, friends, because all of a sudden, his sense that his privilege and his power and his authority and his control are now being threatened by the coming kingdom of this baby that will be born in his region. And here is point number one that I want to make for us this morning, friends. When Jesus comes, when the kingdom of God comes... It will threaten every power, position, privilege of every other kingdom in this world, including yours. When the kingdom of God arrives on the scene, 
There's only one person who can be on the throne, and it's not you. And Herod understands real clearly, if God is really rolling into town, there's only room for one of us on that throne. You see, Herod understands something that most of us miss. Jesus doesn't just come at Christmas for a nice holiday. He doesn't just come to pass out tickets to heaven. No, he comes to bring a new kingdom in which he rules and reigns over everything. Every decision, every dollar, every possession, every ability, every relationship, every activity or thought you engage in, Jesus comes to say, I am king, I am Lord. And if you're like me, when you start to think about Christmas that way, I have a little more grace and mercy for Herod. Because there are a lot of parts in my life that are threatened by the Lordship of Christ. Most of my, I'll just tell you, realize, most of my life yielded, surrendered, fall in line to what Jesus wants, to who He is, to His Lordship and His rule and His reign. But there's a few places I'd kind of like to just keep managing on my own. I'd kind of like to maintain control of. I actually, if I'm really, really honest, and if I look hard at it, I don't want Jesus anywhere near those parts of my life. I'm very comfortable with them the way they are. So that's reaction number one to the birth of Christ. The reaction by Herod, the reaction by us, sometimes at some level, threatened. I guess the question for you today is this. Got any places in your life that are threatened by Jesus these days? Actually, it sounds kind of funny, but I hope so. I hope there are still some places where where you feel like the Lordship of Christ is threatening the way you're thinking, acting, behaving, doing. Because that just shows that you're open to letting Him advance in your life. If nothing's being threatened, then I have to ask you, are you even walking with Him? Maybe some of you this morning... You understand this, but you understand it in a different way because you've, you've resisted coming to Christ. You've resisted accepting Jesus, yielding to His Lordship because you understand implicitly it's not about doubt about the story. It's not about a sense that it's not true. Actually, you do sense that it is true. You have this overwhelming feeling that Jesus is who He says He is, but you're hesitant to yield to Him and surrender to Him because you know that once you do, there's some things about your life that are going to have to change. And they're not small things. And maybe there are things you're not sure you want to give up. Because Jesus says, once I'm Lord, I'll call the shots. And I will not stop until I rule it all. Every attitude, behavior, schedule, everything you do, say, think. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. You see, our next response to Jesus takes us only one phrase further, and don't worry, we'll pick up the pace here in a bit. Uh, And all Jerusalem with him. Herod's disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. You ever think about that for a second? Why would Jerusalem be disturbed or terrified at the coming of the Messiah? These were people who were waiting for Messiah. These were people who were praying for Messiah. These were people who were yearning and begging God to send the Messiah. And now they get word that the Messiah has been born, and they are disturbed? 
Friends, that makes no sense. It does. Here's the deal. Herod, this man ruling them, was an insanely jealous and wicked and evil ruler. At even the slightest threat to his power, he would not and had not hesitated to take drastic actions. This is a man who will protect his turf, defend his throne at all cost. He had in the past executed, killed, murdered, slaughtered hundreds if not thousands of Jewish people. He had gone so far. This man, this man was so irrationally obsessed with his own uh, ego and rule that to protect his throne, he had killed his own father, his own wife, and two of his own sons. This man's crazy. So now word gets out. Messiah, Magi are here. Messiah has been born. And the only thing that people can think about is not that good news. All they can think about is Herod's disturbed. Uh-oh. Let me say it this way, friends. Let me say it this way. Let me see if this resonates with you. The God of the universe has come finally, long awaited, to establish his rule and reign on earth. And God's people, they were more concerned about Herod. The birth of Jesus was happening, but the bigger reality in their life, the thing that was occupying their minds and hearts, was this other thing. This other man, this person, this situation they were facing with Herod. Reaction number two to the birth of Christ, friends, see if it doesn't hit close to home. Distracted, preoccupied, overwhelmed. You know, if that doesn't describe some people in here, I don't know what does. Jesus, we're celebrating the birth of Christ. God come to us as our Savior and Lord, and yet there's something else in your life. There's some other reality you're facing, some concerns, some fears, some situation. That's, that's happening with you. And that is actually the bigger reality in your world right now. That's the thing that's driving your thoughts and attitudes and actions. That's the thing that's consuming your mind and heart. All around you there are lights and songs and trees and decorations. But bigger than the birth of Jesus, bigger than the love and grace of God, is this other thing. Let me ask you, what's the predominant reality in your life right now? Something here? A situation you're facing in this world? Or the love of God available to you in Jesus? Which has bigger sway on your emotions and your thinking? When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people. Reaction number three to the birth of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of God. Apathy. Apathy. These verses blow me away. Think about it again. The Magi have come from the east. The kingmakers of Persia arrived with their cavalry and, and they're searching for Christ. They're declaring that Messiah has come. The greatest king in the history of the world. The long-awaited uh, Savior. 
And the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the, the spiritual leaders and guides for the nation, when they're asked about the birth of this king and where it's supposed to be, they simply quote this passage and then do nothing. Sorry about that. My microphones give me some trouble. They do nothing. They're the ones, they know the prophecy. They tell the, the Magi exactly where this king's to be born in Bethlehem. They get it right for once. I mean, it's amazing. They rarely get it right, but they get it right here. They know it. And yet, and yet, look at your nativity scenes. Are there any religious leaders there? Does, do, does, do any of them go to seek this Messiah, to worship him, to check this, this reality out? No, they just kind of keep on cruising along with life. Yeah, 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 Bethlehem, we've heard it a million times. It's like they've waited for so long, they've heard the prophecy for so long, it just just rolls right past. And they miss it. This passage that they quote in Micah, it's almost as if they're so familiar with it that they've become apathetic to what it says. Uh, It's a quote from Micah chapter 5. And and then listen to the verses that follow because these describe this king that they'd all been waiting for. So you have the quote from from Matthew and then if you go to Micah, here are the verses that follow. Describing Jesus, describing Christ. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace the peace of God that they have searched and thought about and prayed for for so long is right there in front of them and because of their apathy it just floats right past and I guess the question is this morning friends how about you no one is in more danger of this maybe than church people have you ever become so familiar with the story of Christmas with talk of Jesus and songs about Jesus, that your life doesn't really yearn for or seek Jesus, that Jesus is just no big deal? Have you gotten so wrapped up in a religious routine that encountering Christ has lost its wonder? Has Christmas become so much of a holiday that the birth of God almost seems like an afterthought? Maybe it's something you really only think about when you're in this room sitting in these pews. I remember when I first, when I got my first apartment, like, you know, that first place I owned for myself. Have you had this experience, some of you at least, I think? I hope. You're not living with your parents still, Ron? No, good. All right. That's good. Um, You get your first place. I remember for me, I graduated from college. Uh, I took a youth pastor job. I was going to go be a youth pastor in Minneapolis. I didn't know anyone in the city of Minneapolis. I loaded my very stylish white 1985 Buick Century with everything I owned and drove north to Minneapolis and I got my first apartment, hunted around, stayed with this family from church for a little while and then I, then I found my very first apartment, this little teeny one-bedroom place. And it wasn't much. Everybody who lived in that building was like 97 or older and I was 21. I mean, but to me it was like I had I hit the jackpot and every single time I would come home to this apartment, and it wasn't like the greatest apartment. It was poorly decorated, right, hon? Wasn't it? And I had this entertainment center that I thought was awesome. And the TV sat on it and it like, did one of these, like, because it's just so bad. And yet every time I would walk into this apartment, I would just be like, 
thrilled. This is my place. And I just thought, I, this, I could live here forever. Twelve kids, I'll just stay right here. I mean, does it get any better than this? Was literally my feeling every time I would go into that place. And for like a few weeks, maybe even a few months. But then after a few months, it just became normal. It just became a place that I went to after work. And then later down the road, I started thinking, maybe I want more. Maybe it's not enough. I don't even necessarily really like this place anymore. Um, And I guess... The point here is this. Friends, we must never let familiarity, our familiarity with Jesus, translate into apathy for Jesus. And just kind of a quick side point here. I think one of the reasons the people of Jerusalem were more focused on Herod than Jesus, it's because of their apathy. You see, if you have an apathetic faith, the Herods of this world are going to have a heyday with you. If you are apathetic in your relationship with God, you will be threatened by every earthly opposition to faith that comes your way. You know, I read an article this week uh, about spiritual growth. And in this article, in one section, the author was talking about this feeling of apathy, this sense of, of, of apathy in the American Christian church. We just kind of take it for granted and it's not really that significant and we've lost the wonder and the zeal of actually having relationship with God through Christ. And he was talking about how to fight that and what it looks like to battle apathy in our churches. And then at the very end he says, ask two questions. And I was kind of waiting for this big reveal and this big moment and this like grand finale of like, here's how we will fight apathy in the church. And he says, it's real simple. Just ask yourself two questions. What stirs your affections for Christ? And what robs you of those affections? Just what stirs your affections for Christ and what robs you of those affections? You see, what is it, in, what is it that when you engage it, it really helps you to love Jesus more? What is it that when you experience it, it motivates you to be the man or woman God is calling you to be? What is it that, that stirs and energizes your soul and wants you to step out and trust God and live a life of faith more and more? What does that in you? Be aware. Engage those things. I was thinking this week about what those things might be and my first thought was the community group that I've been a part of these last eight weeks. This has been a, a blessing, a place of growth and encouragement. But the thing that jumped out to me most was worship and prayer. I, just, I don't know, I just found myself thinking about worship and prayer. We have this worship and prayer on the second Sunday of every month from 6 to 7. It's just one hour in the chapel. We announced it this morning. We're having it tonight. And I'll just confess to you, as your pastor, there is not, we did this, we started about, about a year ago, Matt. About a year ago we started worship and prayer. There hasn't been a single Sunday when we had worship and prayer that night, that I didn't go home in the afternoon and think to myself and maybe even say to my wife, I don't want to go to worship and, and prayer tonight. Like, I get up early on Sundays. I cannot sleep before I preach. It's just like a curse. And so I'm up at like four or five and I'm preaching all morning. And then I go home and I'm exhausted and I get into my comfy clothes. And a woman from the first service this morning came up to me and said, Pastor Dave, you wear your comfy clothes to preach in. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. There's comfy and then there's comfy. You know, I get into the comfy clothes and I'm like chilled and watching football and having a nap and be with my family. And it's like, it's time to get dressed again and go back to church. It's the last thing I want to do every single time. I think about skipping. I talk to my wife. Is there any possible way I cannot go? And she says, I don't think so. You're the pastor. Like, 
I think you have to go. Okay. And then, coming out the other side, not a single time have I, have I not felt like, man, I'm so glad I went. I just, that was exactly what my soul and heart needed, just to go and not have to be the one giving out, but to just receive and pray and worship and spend time with God's people and communion with Him. I always leave so grateful because my affections for Christ are stirred. Now, I'm not saying that worship and prayer is that place for you, but where is that place? What are those things? Are you aware of what stirs your affections for Christ? And then are you aware of where your affections are being pulled away and robbed from you? Tap into one. Move away from the other. Those are the first three reactions to the birth of Jesus. Threatened, distracted, or overwhelmed. Apathy. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You see, what this story tells us this is this, friends, very clearly. These magi are in no way, unlike the people of Jerusalem, controlled by the fears of Herod. Like Herod's reaction, his response, it, it, it is not connected to their response at all because they are so focused on Jesus. In spite of Herod or any other obstacle, they will press on, they will find Jesus. And then in verse 10, we find the, the, the last and final uh, reaction in this story. I'm sorry, verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Worship, friends, should be, in all instances, our clear and consistent response to the presence of God in our lives. The word here is proskuneo. It literally means to stoop and kiss. It had to do with, in this day, uh, reverence and adoration and obedience and submission. Proskuneo says, you are in charge, you are in control, you are calling the shots in my life. And that, friends, is worship. I want to clarify something for us, because sometimes I think we get this idea that worship is about singing. It's about the radio station we listen to or gathering together and singing a lot of songs real loud and passionately um, in one voice. And the Bible says there's a place for that and that's a part of worship. But that is not what worship is. The scriptures tell us that worship is your life. It's the way you live. It's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. He says worship is when the lordship and authority and rule and reign of Jesus impacts and begins to take over your entire life. It's why faith cannot be segmented out as one small part of your existence. You can't have faith as a category and then work and then family and then recreation. No. The lordship of God runs through it all. And when you yield and surrender all of who you are in all venues to God, that's what the Bible says is 
worship, making God Lord all the time over everything, then he's worshipped. That's when he's worshipped. Worship is when you bow down before him and now you say, Lord, you have control. You have control of my marriage and how I spend my time and the things I say in the hallway at school and how I respond when my friends all want to work together on that homework project or that test or... Worship is your vocabulary and the things you say about people or choose not to say. Worship is the way you spend your money or choose not to spend your money or reroute your money. And worship is is saying, Lord, all of my priorities and dreams and goals, you lead them, you guide them, not what I want or will, but what you want or will. When we live that way, the Bible says that's when we worship. And friends, we come here and we sing... And we call it worship because when we do that, we are declaring and proclaiming something we want to be more and more true in our lives. You see, we call it worship because we come to worship so that we can worship, right? Small w worship is only a part, plays a very small role in actually living lives of big W worship everywhere out there. So this morning, friends, before you leave, before we send you back off into this crazy, hectic, busy Christmas world that we live in, I just want to take a few minutes and ask us to worship together. And as we do, we're just going to sing a few songs here to close. Do this. Ask yourself, are there places in my life that are threatened, that are resistant, maybe even hostile to letting Jesus have control? Are there places in my life that if Jesus really were Lord, things would look differently, they would go differently. And then friends, instead of being threatened, just choose just choose to surrender. Or maybe there's a reality in your life this morning that's distracting you or overwhelming you, friends. As we sing these songs, just ask the presence of God to be and become the predominant reality in your life. No matter what you face, you can have joy and peace and a hope. Why? Because that thing you face, it's not more real, it's not more significant, it's not more powerful than the love of God come to you in Jesus Christ. Remember that today. Let the Spirit of God remind your spirit of that truth. Or maybe this morning you just need to confess your apathy. Confess that you've just, you've just been kind of coasting for a long time. Just kind of cruising along being a Christian, not really intentionally seeking Him or growing or thinking about the kingdom and you just need to say, God, I don't even like to think about it because when I think about my own apathy, it just makes me sick. Just offer it to Him today. Offer it to Him. Say, Spirit, change my apathy to sensitivity. The Bible says that, that the, the Holy Spirit has the power to turn hearts of stone, hearts that are hard and resistant to the things of God, into hearts of flesh, hearts that are soft and receptive to what God wants to and can do in your life. That's the power of the Spirit that Gabby talked about earlier, available not just to that people back then, but to us here and now forever. Tap into that power. Whatever it is, Lord, whatever it is that you need to do with the Lord today, just take a few minutes right now and do some business. We're going to worship, small w worship. Kneel, sit, sing, listen, stand.
Do whatever you need to do. Keep your, your arms firmly cemented to the side of your body like most of you like or raise them gloriously in praise and adoration and exultation to the Father. Do whatever you need to do to do business with God. But take just a few minutes before we go to worship that when we leave we can more fully worship. Uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to come and I'm going to pray. And then we're going to do just that. Father God, this morning we exalt you and we praise you because you are the King. You are the Lord of Lords. You are the one who offers us everything we need and you didn't hold it back from us, God. You brought it down to us in your Son. Help us to seek you and know you and lean on you and experience you in such a way, God, that you are the overwhelming reality for us. And that that reality, the reality of your son, his love, his death and resurrection and redemption and forgiveness, that it would drive us forward, give us new perspective and new hope and new life in this world. Come meet us now, God. Help us see and think about and dwell on what each of us needs to, needs to dwell on. Um, lead us towards the rich, full, abundant life we have in you. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.